there's a basic principle of Christianity that I really love, and that is that um, so often it's the case that it's the people who are least likely, um, the poor, the marginalised, the strange-looking, the awkward, they're the people who are often much better at understanding Jesus than the religious people. And this story is one of those examples in the Bible that illustrates that. She's going to show up the disciples as a, someone who gets Jesus more than they do. And so it's my prayer as well that we'll be challenged by this and that we'll get Jesus more than the disciples got Jesus in this story. Now, you might have heard this story in a few different variations. You get it in all the Gospels. And you'll notice lots of different variations on the theme. And the most obvious one is that um, there's a version where the woman puts the oil um, on Jesus' feet. And then there's a version that we had where the woman puts the oil on Jesus', Jesus head. And there are other differences, like there's different houses where it's set and different things that people say in the conversations. And some have tried to kind of put all those stories together and make one and say that, you know, the gospel writers have had different um, interpretations of this same one story. Like um, uh, Calvin, for example, says, obviously what happened is the oil poured all the way down from her head onto her feet. And so that's why you get the different stories. But most people say there's probably two stories. There's two women probably who do, did something like this in two different settings. Nevertheless, it's interesting, the Gospel writers, they put this story into the Easter story at the beginning of the Easter story. So, And there's a kind of a um, similar point made in all the four versions. So I'm just saying that because you might have different sort of facts or data in your head connected to this story that might confuse you, but I'm just sort of pointing that out. And I'm actually going to maybe occasionally just sort of draw on each of the stories, even though the Matthew one is the one we're going to focus on. At the end of this passage that, we, that Colleen just read for us, Jesus says this point, he says, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And I don't know about you, but I've heard the gospel preached many times. And very rarely is this story used. Um, it's like Jesus had this expectation, um, but um, maybe the church hasn't given her the credit that she's due. So I hope that after this morning's talk, we will do it, the justice that Jesus thinks she deserves. Let's just look at the setting before we get into kind of drawing out the meaning. Uh, verses 6 to 7 gives us the setting. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the, the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume which she poured on his head, and he was reclining at the table. So the setting's a supporter's house. Simon the leper, his name is. Don't know much about him. He sounds like a character of a mafia film, you know. <laughs> Simon the leper. He probably didn't have leprosy at that point. Maybe he'd been healed by Jesus. Um... Two main characters, though, in the story are really Jesus and this woman. And in, in, in this version, she's anonymous, although other versions of the story call her Mary, and a sinner as well. And um, we think maybe she was a, even a prostitute because she's walking around with the alabaster jar around her neck, which was a thin, with perfume in it, which was a thing that prostitutes did. So perhaps she was a prostitute that had heard the gospel and been transformed by Jesus. 
Mark says uh, in the Gospel of Mark that the perfume was worth over 300 denarii, which is about a year's wage per wage. So it's really kind of a lot of, of, of money what she's um, going to spend on Jesus. And we should look at the purpose of the oil as well before we get into the story. I've had several uses this oil. Um, it was used in celebration. It was used in hospitality over the head. Um, it was used in anointing of kings and priests to mark them out for divinely, divinely appointed office. So what she's doing, whether she realised it or not, had huge significance and overtones. Um, maybe she's pointing to the fact that he's the Messiah. She's probably doing things she doesn't even realise. It's so often the case that characters in the Bible do things that have huge meaning and they don't necessarily realise the significance of what they're doing. Um, but it's like the spirit leads them to do this action. And when I look at her, I, I think of myself in a way because I see her as the sinful woman who represents me and represents all sinners. All sinners in the past and in the future. So there's kind of a bit of a background to the main character, Jesus and this woman, the setting in a house a few days before Jesus is arrested and put on the cross. And what I want us to notice in this story is a contrast between the woman and the disciples and for us to think about what it really means to be a person who's transformed by Jesus. Because I can see, I think, four things in her. Four things about the way she's transformed by Jesus. That's something for us to, to learn. So first of all, I want to look at the way a person that's truly transformed by Jesus shouldn't need to be self-righteous. Look at verse 8 and 9. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. <laughs> Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. So here the disciples are at odds with Jesus. Why this waste, they said. It was like the time when they disapproved of the people bringing the children to Jesus. What are you doing wasting Jesus' time with his children? And they're murmuring to each other and they're sort of... You know, like religious people do at the back of church when the songs played the wrong song in church. You know, people whispering to each other. The sermon goes too long, people whispering to each other. Um, and Jesus hears this and knows what's going on. And it was a classic case of Christians or, you know, judging and pointing the finger. And the Gospel of John says it was Judas who got the conversation going. He started it off and then they all followed. It was like... You know, he had a cold and sneezed on them and they all got it too, you know. His heart was already poisoned. He was about to go and betray Jesus. His, his, um, something was going on in him and he was just letting that spread all through uh, the disciples. And for that moment, they were companions of Judas. The disciples were companions of Judas, not of Jesus. Now, their issue was what you call misplaced piety. It is true that during pilgrimage uh, for the Jews, you would give alms to the poor. And let's face it, their rabbi Jesus went on about serving the poor and giving to the poor. He was the king of the poor people, Jesus. So you can understand their pious remark, but they were being actually self-righteous. And let that be a warning to us against being self-righteous. Think about the story of the prodigal son, just for one minute. 
Uh, think about the older brother in the prodigal son who pointed his finger at the younger sinful brother and condemned him for coming back to his father. He said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, waving his finger, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What a waste. Very similar, isn't it? The woman, who was a sinner, was just like the younger brother. The disciples had followed Jesus around and been trying to live holy lives. They couldn't understand Jesus' reaction to this sinner. Why is he accepting her? In our bookstore, I think we've still got Henry Nouwen's book, do we? Yep, Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Great book. Um, Nouwen, a Catholic priest, he identifies with the older brother in this story who stands in the shadows of judgment. The book actually focuses on Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal son. And there you see the older brother just in the black, shut his eyes, poking through. But now one realises that it's not just the younger son who has to come home to the father. The older son has to come home and repent. And he says that's what he has to do too. Now one says, can the eldest son in me come home? How can I return when I am lost in resentment? When I am caught in jealousy, when I am imprisoned in obedience and duty that is lived out as slavery. And the answer, according to Henry Nouwen, is found in living with ongoing thankfulness as a disciple and not just being a good person as a religious duty to earn God's favour. We've got to choose to live in thankfulness, and I'm going to talk a bit more about thankfulness a bit later, of what Jesus has done for us. I know that I am an older brother, both literally... And actually in the sense that Henry Nouwen and Jesus is talking about in The Prodigal Son. I've been a person my whole life who's always tried to work hard for God, work hard in the church. You know, when I was in high school and as a young adult in my church growing up, I always got involved in everything. And that has caused me at times to pass judgment on my friends who, who I perceive to be a bit lazy, you know, at church. Not putting in as much effort as me. And it's at those times that I've had to repent. And it's taken me years to kind of... I still find myself, catch catch myself doing it. I need to remember that God loves me as his child, no matter how many things I've done at church. No matter how many rosters I've been on. I need to remember what the father said to the older brother, which was, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Now, getting back to the Matthew 26 story... I see so many parallels here. A part of me would like to think that after this little event, um, that Jesus would take the disciples aside and he would remind them of the story of the prodigal son. And referring to the woman, Jesus might have quoted himself saying to the disciples, but we have to celebrate and be glad, guys, because this sister of yours was dead and she's alive again. She was lost and is found. Let's just think a bit more about being self-righteous as as well, though. Some really practical things. If you want to avoid being self-righteous, there are two lessons I think you can get just out of these couple of verses. First of all, we should avoid joining in with gossip and judgment. If you hear hear a fellow brother or sister from church judging someone else, don't join in. Don't catch the Judas venomous tongue. Uh, Even... Even better, rebuke your friend. It's a bit bit risky. 
You might um, end up in tears with each other. Tell them to take up their issue of judgment with the person concerned rather than causing division in the church. In my experience, we Christians are brilliant. We're experts at criticising each other, but with a tone that sounds righteous. Shouldn't we be selling the perfume and giving the money to the poor, Jesus? Secondly, a, a real simple thing we can do is don't get angry about something we don't understand. Always assume there's more to what you see or hear about than what you're aware of. A phrase I like to remind myself is um, assume incompetency rather than conspiracy. So someone might say something to you or you might observe something that makes you feel offended but it's best to assume that either they made a mistake or that you're incompetent in your interpretation of their action rather than assume there's a conspiracy against you. What this woman was doing with the oil was so profound at so many levels, but the disciples did not have the insight that Jesus did, or that we have now, because we've got the Bible and we've got hindsight. What we see here is um, a lesson about what it really means to be a true disciple, which is that a person that's truly transformed by Jesus doesn't need to be self-righteous should walk away from being self-righteous. Secondly, a person transformed by Jesus looks foolish. Verse 10, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. So after they make this gesture of saying, this is a waste, Jesus returns fire by saying, actually, it's beautiful. Bad luck, guys. And I think it's so good that Jesus, who's a a person we think of as being frugal and... uh, you know, temp, temp, you know, showing temperance and, and, and um, simplicity actually approves of this lavish action, um, which is seen by others as luxurious and frivolous. It's a great example of the last will be first and the first will be last, isn't it? This person who we least expect does something amazing. The woman who looked unimportant and unworthy to sit at the feet of the King of Heaven actually understood more profoundly who he was than the disciples who got to follow him around everywhere. It's so common for us to want to open fire at people for their obedience and for their, for their actions of godliness. Other people's good works make us feel sort of challenged about our own selves. We feel exposed at our lack of godliness So, like the disciples, we want to cut other people down to size. The disciples sat in the seat of judgment over this woman, but Jesus is the true perfect judge and put them in their place. Again, I I can understand that the disciples may have been somewhat confused. You know, how how can you say to the rich young ruler, well, if you want to be saved, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, but then to this woman who wants to spend 300 denarii on, on this one little act of worship... Well, I mean, what, is Jesus being consistent here? The answer is that Jesus was astounded with what was going on in her heart. It was her lavish devotion to him. She was giving her best. Jesus isn't saying this is some kind of law now, uh, that, 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 that his followers should spend 300 denarii on oil and, 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 uh, and do this kind of regular act of worship, you know. Um, I love this quote from um, Calvin. He said, 
This must be carefully weighed that we may not fall into the error of contriving expensive modes of worshipping God as the papists do with their incense, wax tapers, splendid decorations, LED screens and light shows, which I added, and pompous exhibitions of that nature. What he's saying is that what she did in a single instance, God looked favourably on because she did it for a good reason. And Jesus could see this in her heart. Jesus didn't care about the ointment as such. But on the other hand, this anointing pleased him because of the circumstances under which it happened. This is a special moment in history. A moment where he's about to die. And he found what she did to be profound. And it's so often the case that what people hate, God loves. We should learn to pay no attention to the opinions of other people so that it might be built up by our example of obedience to God. When the world gets angry with a stand you've taken and rises up against you, when people say, what are you doing that for? Remind yourselves of this, that what is considered bad on earth is considered good in heaven. Even committing to come to church each Sunday, people will think, what are you doing that for? I remember telling my conductor in an orchestra when he changed the rehearsal date to a Sunday evening and I, at that time, was going to church on a Sunday evening and I said, I can't go because I've got church on. He just looked at me like, what? He was so annoyed. But what is hated on earth is often loved in heaven. If you give your money for ministry purposes and not get tax deductibility, your accountant will think you're wasting your money. But what is hated on earth is often loved in heaven. If you use your holidays to go on a beach mission, your friends will think you're churchy and a bit strange. But what is hated on earth is often loved in heaven. People who truly transform like Jesus end up looking foolish by the world because... They embrace things that the world doesn't understand, but God loves. Don't be put off by this. Don't water down your faith so that people will think you're wise, so that it sounds more palatable to your friends and colleagues. Remember 1 Corinthians 1.25, which says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We see in this woman, a woman transformed by Jesus and she looked foolish and the disciples, they just didn't get it. Thirdly, a person transformed by Jesus is really thankful. Verse 11, Jesus says to the disciples, The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now I've heard Christians actually, Christian ministers actually say, use this verse as a justification for not bothering with acts of justice in church. They say, that's not the main game. We're always going to have the poor with us, which is a complete misapplication of this verse. He was, Jesus here is referring to a sentiment in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 15, verse 11, which says the poor will never disappear from the land. And this is in the context of developing laws about ongoing service of the poor. And it's making the point that you're just going to have to keep doing this because the poor are all going to be, always going to be around. Even though, ideally, poverty would end up being eliminated amongst God's people, in reality, it will never go away. So you have to keep giving and giving and giving. 
So nothing in Jesus' words is actually detracting from that ethical and social demand. And for us in 2015, because we're more aware of what's going on in the whole world and we're more able to have, um, you know, com- you know, to direct our money around the world and, and have an awareness of what's going on politically, um, we, we have even more focus on this and see that this is really true. Jesus is saying to the disciples, for the rest of your lives, you're going to be giving to the poor and serving the poor. But right now, in contrast to this need, Jesus was in need. And he didn't have long to go. He was about to be taken away and executed. So this short-lived opportunity took priority. But behind Jesus' rebuke was a challenge to the disciple about what kind of relationship he wanted to have with them. What we see here are two approaches to Jesus. There is this religious approach of the disciples and there is this humble approach of the woman. The disciples were being typically religious. They were denying her the right to worship him in her own way. They didn't care that it cost her so much. They put conditions on her and by implication on themselves. This perfume could have been sold and given to the poor. Their attitude to being good was getting in the way. That was holding them back. Whereas on the other hand, you've got this woman who's thankful. Um, she, she, she had no conditions on her devotion to Jesus. She, she came before for him, and, and in some of the um, versions of the story, she lets her hair down, uh, which was a risky thing to do. She spends all her livelihood on him. She didn't care what anyone thought. She came to Jesus unconditionally. If he was who he said he was, he could have what little she had. And as she comes to Jesus in return, she discovers that Jesus accepts her, that she's actually forgiven, even though she's a sinner. And the love that Jesus shows her enables her to love in a way that she couldn't love before. Look at this woman. This is a woman who is truly thankful for what Jesus has done for her. And this is the gospel. It's not the powerful religious people, but it's the marginal people who show us how to become a Christian. People who are truly transformed by Jesus are so thankful because of what Jesus has done for them in accepting them. <coughs> Lastly, a person transformed by Jesus is cross-focused. Cross-focused. Verse 12. When she poured this perfume on my body, says Jesus, she did it to prepare me for burial. Jesus would have been expecting to be denied the proper burial rites for a Jew because he was going to be executed by the Romans. And her actions were probably just meant to be an act of love, but Jesus saw something deeper there. Jesus didn't care so much about the smell of the perfume, rather, he knew he was looking forward to the, the aroma that would go forth into the world from, the, from his own death. The beauty and the, the salvation that he would bring to the whole world, that was the true aroma. It was like his death would be the true perfume. And what she did pointed to that. Whatever her intention, she's done for him what his execution, executioners could not or would not do, given Um, which was to give him the the required things for a proper Jewish burial. And so Jesus says to the disciples in verse 13, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. See, she got it. And as we shall see on Good Friday, it's also women who stay with Jesus, not the men. It's, It's amazing who it is who the gospel writers bring out to get 
um, to show who understand Jesus. Jesus points the disciples to a future time when the gospel will be preached around the world. They will remember her beautiful devotion, but more importantly, they will remember his beautiful death. The foolish disciples criticised her, but in contrast, Jesus proclaimed that the whole world would celebrate her. So let's remember what it means to be a person who's truly transformed by Jesus. As we approach Easter, let's think about this, that we don't need to be self-righteous, that we will look foolish, that we need to be thankful and that we should be cross-focused. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you uh, for this woman. We just bring our hearts before you. Pray that we can remember that we are just like her, sinners that need to be forgiven and that you have forgiven us. If we're struggling with what it means to look foolish, please help us just to not worry about what other people say. And as we approach Easter, let's truly be thankful for what you did for us on the cross. Let us remember that that action has provided forgiveness for us for eternity. If we have faith in you. Amen.